Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the Dungeons and Dragons podcast. In today's episode, we speak with Mike Merles, who is, of course, no stranger to the podcast, about the release of the fifth edition core rulebooks. So, without further ado, welcome Mike Merles to the DD podcast. Yay! <laughs> Thanks for having me back on. Yeah, well, you, you, you passed the test. We Good. invited you. You got the second invitation. It's very hard to nice. get a second invitation right. to this podcast. Cool. <laughs> Excellent. So I say, of course, that you're no stranger. Mike uh, had been the host of the podcast for a very long time until this pesky little thing called the development of fifth edition tended to impact yeah, your schedule. Just a bit. <laughs> uh, but for those who might not have been as familiar with you, who are you? What is your role at Wizards of the Coast? So uh, I am the senior manager for the uh, R&D team uh, working on Dungeons & Dragons. So in essence, you can think of my role as setting the strategic direction for the Dungeons & Dragons gaming side of things as opposed to maybe like the business side of things. Uh, That includes story. So which characters, which settings, which monsters and villains will we feature in each storyline we do? And it also includes which games we want to pursue. So obviously, we have the tabletop role-playing game. That's part of our DNA. But we also do things like we license the rights to D&D to MMOs. Uh, There's Neverwinter and Dungeons & Dragons Online. We work with both of them. We have other partners we work with. Uh, WizKids does official licensed games, tabletop games, and miniatures for the role-playing game. And and other partners, like Gale Force 9, uh, does accessories for the tabletop role-playing game. So what we do in the R&D team is we think, well, in terms of what's the big picture for Dungeons & Dragons, where should we go next? What's the game's future in terms of story and gameplay? And I also work a lot with the brand team. The brand team looks at more from the business end of what are our new audiences, how do we grow the game in terms of demographics or expanding it worldwide. Like right now, we have a pretty strong presence in North America and English-speaking countries. How do we expand it out? What are the new platforms and technologies we want to integrate into Dungeons & Dragons and so on and so forth? So it's essentially two sides of the same coin. You can think of the brand team as being really business and directional in terms of uh, the uh, the structure behind Dungeons and Dragons and the business side of Dungeons and Dragons, and then R and D handles the creative side of Dungeons and Dragons and the actual mechanics of gameplay and the actual plot lines of the stories. So, senior manager sounds somewhat important, <laughs> maybe tangentially, but uh, uh, but obviously critical to to the brand, an important position professionally. How did you sort of come from? mere player of the game <laughs> to to uh, senior manager of Dungeons and Dragons. We we may have talked about this before, but it's worth going back and, well, and talking about like everybody has their like yeah. their early D and D story. And it'd be interesting if every time you asked this question I gave a different answer. Who is this Mike Really? So uh, I started by working on the design of tabletop role playing games. Uh, I worked for a number of different uh, companies on a number of different game lines. Uh, the World of Darkness games, I worked on Hunter the Reckoning, Vampire the Masquerade. Uh, I worked on a few other role-playing games. Uh, and it's kind of funny. I didn't really work on many fantasy games until D&D. So there's a game called Unknown Armies. It's a, a modern sort of, I'm not really doing it justice, but it's a sort of supernatural occult underground kind of game. Uh, a game called Feng Shui, which is not about moving furniture. Too it's bad. about modern-day action That movies. actually got me really excited. <laughs> <laughs> And so uh, I worked on those games, and then when 3rd Edition came out, 
the I did a lot of work on uh, D20 system stuff using the open gaming license. So actually, I take that back. I did a lot of fantasy work, but it was basically fantasy work on Dungeons and Dragons. I think the only other fantasy games I worked on were Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, and there was a Lord of the Rings role-playing game uh, that came out around the time of the first movie trilogy. So that essentially transformed from a part-time freelance gig to a full-time freelance gig. Before that, I was a programmer. Um, I did that for a few years out of college. Uh, I also did tech support and sysadmin work. And really, it was just persistence. I just kept writing stuff and building up my resume and learning about gaming, really reading stuff about it, the art of game design. Game design is a really fun thing to work on these days because it's like film, like, in the, very, in the early 20th century. No one really knows how to do right. it. Everyone's guessing, and they're throwing a lot of money at it in cases of a lot of AAA titles. But no one really knows what good game design. I mean, we know more now than we did a year ago or five years ago, but it's still evolving. If I remember way back when Jesse Decker was in R&D, and he had, it was a design and development test for potential employees. And I believe one of the questions was, what is the most powerful class and your answer was sort of the template for this is the correct answer. Yeah. <laughs> and, really? And if you could hit these points, then you you know the system pretty well. Do you remember well. what your answer was? Yeah, it was cleric. It was for, for, for third edition D&D, &D, it was cleric. Cleric had uh, spells and none of the weaknesses that are normally associated with casting spells. Like good, they had good armor and they had good hit points. The... Um, in fact, it was interesting work on 5th edition because we knew we could not fall back into that trap. How do we make clerics and wizards balance out against fighters and rogues? So that was actually something that was a big part of the design. So, the, yeah, that was the... Um, I mean, a question like that, was, was it's just interesting. It's very context-dependent for the game. You know, where is the game at the point at the point in time? And then also, where is the audience at that point in time? I remember talking to someone who worked on 3rd edition. I won't name names. But not too long after the game came out... And uh, this person told me, oh, the druid is by far the worst character class. It's so horribly underpowered and weak. No one will ever play a druid. And if you'd gone to, say, a living Greyhawk table at the time, which was the organized play campaign at the time, people would have told you what druids are so ridiculously busted <laughs> and by far the most powerful class. My, so This was one of the games I think you ran when you were running against the Giants, yep. a version of that. And I remember being at the table with a fellow player. His name was Rob Watkins. Oh, yes. And realizing I could never be a good character min-maxer because his druid's animal companion was head and shoulders better than my yep. character. Yep. And I thought, I'll never be able to create a character. So that was a fun game because <laughs> I told the players, some of whom are very hardcore optimizers, to make any character they wanted within, the, I think it was like eighth level, ninth level. And I let them make the cheesiest, most broken characters. And then your poor, poor character, who was just a normal character that Aww. a normal person made. I was, but I was You're so like proud. He, he was a little gnome <laughs> cleric, I yep. think. And and cleric. Was, ah, he's going to be the best. And then Rob Watkins' dinosaur would just He had a tear dinosaur? He had a dinosaur. Yep. <laughs> and there was a number of other notable Wizards of the Coast optimizers. Now, the fun thing about that game was running against the giants, the Steeding of the Hill giant chieftain. I ran the first session straight, just hear the monsters straight out of the monster manual, and they were just destroying them. What they didn't know was that the second half, like the bosses and stuff, were things that I had optimized oh. using all the same dirty tricks they were using. <laughs> so I vividly remember when they kicked open the door, and there was a hill giant druid, mm -hmm. of course, 
with his animal companion and his collection of broken prestige glasses, who then proceeded to murder Rob Watkins' dinosaur. Oh, wow. <laughs> and his character. How they were. I I did not do well, oh. uh, but I learned to stay behind yes. the stronger, more powerful characters, yes. and that worked out well. There were a lot of fun moments. That was I have to say, third edition has complexity issues, but there was something fun about taking a stone giant and giving it levels. And if you're a three EDM, you might this might be something you can you, you, that'll warm your heart. Take like a hulking hurler and sor- and wizard level sorcerer levels maybe on a on a stone giant. And then put, uh, what was the name? Oh, there was one barbarian prestige class that had this ridiculously broken, um, I can't, frenzied berserker. So you had frenzied berserker, mm-hmm. hulking hurler, sorcerer, stone giants, oh throwing rocks at people and just murdering them <laughs> with true, true strike and power attack and all these ridiculous combos. The, uh, it was definitely a game I set up as like this is this is competitive. Like I'm going to make the best characters you can make, and then the lesson being that the dungeon master can always out cheese the players if he wants to. Which is interesting because we have a few copies of the dungeon master's guide floating around the building, and from what I've we've been doing our previews from the, the book too, it kind of feels like a lot of that has made its way into the new dungeon master's guide in a way because I just feel like that. There's a lot of tips and tricks and just a lot of oh. like freedom. <laughs> like, hey, like dungeon masters for, like, for, for, a second, for out cheesing your players. For, or, well, for a second, I thought you meant there were a hulking hurler, like a frenzied berserker. Cut that out. <laughs> no, well, it, it's a very different approach because we've one of the things we did very consciously in fifth edition was simplify the rule set not only to make the game more approachable, which is something we had saw crystal clear of the feedback and the play test and just from people in general, right? Lots of people want to play D&D, but many people just feel like, I thought this was a storytelling game. Why am I doing all this math and 30 steps to make my character? The, um, but also Dungeon Masters, by making, for them, by making the game simpler, we've made it much easier to modify the game, to understand the game and change it. And then also just to understand if you're having a problem with the system, a simpler system is much easier to, to fix for your needs. You know, the um, the Dungeon Master's Guide really does focus on serving as a good tool to build your campaign and then giving you some really good advice for how to change things, how to modify things, either story-wise or, like, maybe change some rules in your game. Like, for instance, we previewed the, the guidelines for creating a new character race, and we don't give you a spreadsheet or a formula because those don't work in role-playing games. Instead, what we can give you is some, some pretty good advice on, well, here are the questions you need to answer to create the new player option that you want to put into your game. Because that's, honestly, that's the actual design process it goes through when we make this stuff for books. We yeah. don't have a spreadsheet. That's actually, that's a, a good point, the design process, because reading through the Dungeon Master's Guide, it really felt like a design book. Like, it really yeah. is a guide, yeah. first and foremost, but it's also felt like, this actually feels like an introduction to game design for yeah. you know for experience and new dungeon masters it's i found it it was very inspirational thank you no and that was we were really looking at the uh, the AD&D player uh, dungeon masters guides for both first and second edition i think the second edition dungeon masters guides a bit underrated um, and then the, the first edition Dungeon Master's Guide, a lot of people would say that's the best one ever that's been made because it really takes this very here's how i'm going to teach you how to be a expert on this stuff approach it doesn't it doesn't spend a lot of time explaining things that you probably already know as a person who is you know knows a little bit about fantasy 
the um, yeah, so we were definitely inspired by the first edition one really just for the idea of here's how to run a game. Here's everything you need to know. And here's lots of like tables and inspiration to get you thinking creatively about what the campaign, the story, the adventure. And then the second edition one, which had a lot of optional rules in it, I think people have kind of forgotten now, um, really taking, say, hey, this is the game, this is your game, so run it the way you want. And here are some options for making that happen. The, um, but I think a really a big shift, if you're familiar with third or fourth edition versus fifth, is in third and fourth, we have this approach where uh, a mathematical formula would describe something. Like if a monster is fifth level, here's the math to give it the correct numbers. Right. The reverse is true in fifth, where instead we say create the monster and then use the math to then put that monster into its correct place within the system. So you create your monster and then look at whatever its hit points, its armor class, its attacks, and then you can take those numbers. You don't change them. You just compare them to the baselines in the system. Now you know where to categorize it. So rather than picking your label first and then the label describes the monster, you describe the monster and then use that description to say which of these labels fits best for, its, say, its challenge rating or anything like that. So that's another kind of fundamental change. We really want to make the creative process be what drives everything, and the mechanical system is just what you do at the end. And now, if you want, you can reverse it. You can just start with, well, this label, see challenge rating five. What are the range of values that that would apply to? Then you can start with that and work backwards if you want. But the idea being it's more the story. The storytelling, the pure creative process is more important. So that's actually exactly what we were excited to talk to you about is about going back through, through the past editions and how much of that stuff, because you, you guys really looked back at every edition, at every core rule book that was from those editions and were pulling things that you thought worked really well in there and leaving some things behind. But also just from your experience, because you played D&D as, as a young lad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, I mean, that's got to just be, that's just always, it's, it's weird to me to think about something that I did as a kid that I really, really loved and that really influenced me and I can't even think of what that is. I, mean, I loved Smurfs. Yeah. <laughs> if you could they be a Smurf. But they, they didn't really like have the impact on me the way that D&D has had on so many people growing up. But for, from your experience as a as 11-year-old Mike Merle's playing your first edition campaign or second edition campaign to Mike Merle's senior manager of R&D who's actually like at the helm of of creating the next edition of this incredibly iconic game. Like how how do you is it is it easier to to create a new edition based based on 40 years of history, or is it easier just to create a brand new game from scratch? I think it's much harder to take an existing game yeah. and keep it true to its nature. Yeah. Because it's very easy to fall down the rabbit hole of, well, what if we start reinventing everything? Right. And then you have an audience that is built in, and they know what they like. Yeah. How do you connect with them? while also doing things like one of our big goals with 5th edition was to make it more accessible. We know lots of people want to play D&D, but they bounce off the game for a wide variety of reasons, but almost all of that wide variety can be traced back to it's just too complex. Yes. So how do you That's simplify That's always the game? been one of the no, stereotypes of D&D, it's, and exactly. it's not even that much of a stereotype. There yeah. is a lot of complexity, or there was. And No, exactly. And when you think about it, this is when people say, what's great about D&D, people don't say, well, it's great about D&D is, oh, there's so much math. Or there's right. a rule for everything. That's not that yeah. doesn't appeal to people who haven't played the it game takes before. Me seven hours to create a first level character. Yeah, exactly. It's no much thing. more like no. It's this freewheeling storytelling game. It's a game where yeah. you can do anything. There's no there are no limits. 
it's there's a dungeon master who is going to create anything you need on the fly, can make decisions, can make the game come to life. And so really zeroing in on that. But yeah, you have those expectations. So as a designer, it's very easy to go to one of two extremes. One extreme being, let's just never change anything. Let's just put some fresh paint on it and hope right. for the best. Everything's a sacred cow. Yeah, exactly. And the other end is like, oh, well, it's Dungeons and Dragons. People will accept anything we give them. So let's change everything. And Kill your darkness. Yeah, yeah, exactly, right? So what was important for us in fifth was the playtest process because that served as the guiding light for us to know here's where we need to change things and try to get really innovative. And here's where this is something that's just working. And if we pull that out, we're just making life difficult for people. Mm-hmm. The, um, and so the playtest process of polling the audience, releasing basically a beta version of the game, letting people check it out and give us feedback, and not just feedback like, I'm going to go post on a forum or send you a Facebook message. Like we had like a person here whose job was to create surveys and validate the data and make sure that everything was, hey, this is all statistically mm-hmm. significant samples and we're presenting the data in a way that's understandable and is legitimate. We're not fudging things. Uh, and she did a great job. For two um, years. For two years. Yes. Yep. We definitely put her through the ringer, but she was awesome. She did a great job. Kim Kim Lundstrom did all that stuff for us. Who's also a very passionate D&D player. Which probably helps. Yeah. We're asking her, like, hey, let's do another 300, 300 question survey. And, right. <laughs> and she's willing to do it for us. The um, And so, yeah, that really was a huge help because it meant we had a very clinical diagnosis of, hey, here are things we can do to make Dungeons & Dragons better for people who already like Dungeons & Dragons. And at the same time, what was great was we found the people playing D&D wanted a simpler game. Like, that was a huge relief, right? Like, we were yeah. worried. That was a big worry was that if you already play D&D, you actually, oh, you're used to the complexity or you want it. And that's kind of what we had distilled the audience down to by the past 14 years since the launch of Third. The game got significantly more complicated uh, that the people left playing tabletop role-playing games and wanted complexity. Doing a simpler game would drive them all out, and we'd have to hope that we'd just get enough new players mm-hmm. in. But what seems to be happening is existing players have really embraced the game, and we're getting in the new players. I know the the starter set we did just did fantastic. Like yeah. it's, we had to go back to the early '80s to find any comparisons in terms of the success we've had. So it's been great. Well, it's been it's it's designed in a way that if you did want that complex game, you you can you can do that. You can do it. Right. You just you would need the full rule books. You need to yep. work at it. It's not it's not baked into the game the way no, it was before. Which is you, great. It's yeah. very a la carte. No, and that's exactly it. That's what we wanted was if you want complexity, you can. it's there. You just have to. We're not going to force everyone to put up with it. And some of the things. Sorry, Bart. No. I just got all inspired by <laughs> <Sorry>. this. Um, <laughs> but, but some of the, the, the adjectives that continuously come up when people are talking about the, the new core rule books and the reviews of, of the new um, rule books, they always say streamlined. Mm-hmm. And they always comment on the flexibility and just the ease of, of play, which is I'm assuming those were – Adjectives you were hoping that that right. you would. We we wanted we wanted all hear. all those things to point back to elegance. Yeah. That everything in the game flowed. It all fit together. No extraneous pieces. We're never asking you to do work that you don't want to do. Every choice point you make was oh this is interesting. I want mm-hmm. I want to make this choice. Not I have to make this choice. And I think good games are full of I want rather than I must. The yeah. um, you know we just we chain together. You know it's a pleasurable activity. It should be entertainment. It shouldn't be work. Um, so why not just get rid of all the work? <laughs> we have that power, so why don't we use it? 
Yes. Can you use that power in all aspects of life? You know, that is actually that is actually a very big, interesting question for the 21st century. Like, if you apply game design principles to everything, would you get? Could you design jobs where people like, oh, this is not like obvious. Everything has some amount of drudge work, right? Like, even if you're playing D and D, you have to carry your books around. You have to paper carry that pencil. heavy bag of yeah, dice right, around yeah. with you. Organize your DM screen, your dice, and all that stuff. <laughs> but what can you do, you know, s- as a society to build things that are more based on positive feedback, yeah. you know. Gamification, there, big there buzzword. No, I mean, it also has a dark side to it, but. I'm going to butcher her name, but I think it's Jane McGonigal does yeah. some, uh, <clears throat> some book writing exactly yeah. on that topic. But, I mean, there's also, you know, the entire addiction loop thing it can lead to, like, mm-hmm. when you build addictive systems where people are, maybe it's not in their best interest to keep playing this game, but they will and spend money on it. But well, I mean, from a young age, yeah, everyone, many people had the chore table yeah. at home. You got stars, you got, uh, you gamified if you did the dishes or yeah. oh, put yeah, your laundry yeah. away or what have you. I had to water the plant. <laughs> uh, no, I was laughing because a lot of the questions I had written down, you had sort of naturally touched upon anyways. Oh, I was asking about the playtest process uh, and how the feedback was was uh, was processed and incorporated. Uh, just to touch back upon that really quickly, uh, out of curiosity, I was wondering, were there other ever instances where you sort of had like a, a proton and electron as far as opinions that would naturally cancel each other out? Or was there surprising feedback that you didn't expect that would come in that made the process that much more difficult or interesting? Probably really the, the really big surprise was just the push towards simplicity. Mm-hmm. And that's a bit of a cop-out because it made our job easier. <laughs> the um, So no, the, the, the playtest was, I don't want to say... W- we had like our optimistic scenario and this blew it out of the water because there were things where it caused more, you know, there were definitely instances uh, such as the warlock and sorcerer class. We released very different versions of those classes. They didn't go over very well. So that was a little like, okay, we need to get something that's more traditional. But overall, the playtest process was, I don't want to say easy because we had to expend significant energy to do it, but there were never any of the sort of problems that were like, we have to totally MacGyver this to get things to work. Like they were just like, no, we just need to put in the energy and the work and we'll get to where we need to be. Again, because people were very clearly calling for a simpler, mm-hmm. more streamlined game. The um, So that was a big help. The uh, And that was, again, that was very surprising. We weren't sure. My suspicion was people would want more complexity, that the first play test packet, we would just consistently see, you know, add more detail to the rules. What we did see was people wanted to see more options like character classes, spells, and races. But we also saw that the, we there wasn't there's not an infinite demand for that. That there are people want stuff, but once you give them enough, they very quickly don't want more stuff. Like and you're also giving spells. them lots of options to create their own stuff, yeah. like in the Dungeon Master's Guide. And that's what people like. People like being able to create their own stuff. Yeah. That's a big part of Dungeons and Dragons. I always felt like the play test with you know when the surveys would come back in and or the packets would go out, the surveys would come back. And then, first of all, the community was awesome because over 175,000 people participating, but also, like, they were so passionate with their feedback. I won't, every time I get an email, it's like, please take our five-minute survey and tell us about, no, I don't have time for that. But they were, I, I remember Kim talking about, from a market research perspective, that the return rate for those surveys was unheard of in market research standards. You you get, I forget what the percentage is, that's normal. And it was like a hundred times more yeah. than that. Like people were so great about giving their, their feedback. But you know that game Mastermind? Mm-hmm. It's one of my favorite games. 
I always it's a uh, terrible game because he loses. That's why <laughs> I am no mastermind. I am. User. I'm a mastermind. <laughs> like anyway, anyway, different different topic. But it always reminded me of that, like because you know you you do your guesses and you say like, well, you got two colors right, and you got two pegs right, and then you go again, and it's like now you only got one color right. I always had like that that thought in my head of like, what if the surveys come back and now it's like. No, now it's like one step yeah, back. Yeah, no colors right. Yeah, like there's no yeah. colors right because you, you like there were so many little tweaks here and there, but they made such a big difference. And then, like you know, it was just it never it didn't happen like that. Thankfully, we got to see yeah. that people were getting more and more excited about it. But yeah, no, it was definitely we started off like like half the colors right. It's like oh okay, that's good. Yeah, actually, true story. I played Mastermind once, the freakiest thing. I it was back. I want to say it was right after college. Like someone had it out for some reason we were playing and the person I was playing with got them all right in the first go. It was incredibly freaky. Whoa. We had a friend pull that off in Clue once and just nailed it in the first time. And the whole point of the game is you throw it out there and then you base your answers on, you know, getting yeah. progressively closer. And he just won the game on the I, first guess. I actually broke my wife's faith in the game Clue. I don't know if she remembers this, but one of my big strategies includes like if I have something like oh I have the rope I'll say well I think it was you know does anyone like what do you do like you 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 say like I think it was the rope yeah and someone has in it. this room with yeah. this person with you the make rope a guess based on what no one has because yeah. yeah. those are in the folder yeah and so you make a guess but there's a there's a point where you can guess right like mm -hmm. so I would make yeah. guesses and I'd have the card in my hand. So oh, Mike doesn't the rope. Oh, so, oh yeah, that's right. come off once the scent. Yeah, when she found out uh, you could do that, she didn't want to play anymore. So speaking of options, <laughs> she uh, didn't want to play anymore. <laughs> I broke Clue for my family. Nice. <laughs> physically, uh, yeah. Th yeah. Then she then she physically broke it. Yeah. No one, no <laughs> one will ever play this. Game. It, it's a pity because we have one of the really nice vintage sets that um, that has were made. That um, you know, it comes with like a nice case with the nice pieces and stuff, and we just don't play anymore. And I actually like the game. It's a fun game. It's a fun game. But uh, going back, speaking of options, you mentioned uh, that that people wanted in the book. I mean, in each of the core rule books, and I'll give for those who may not be familiar with it, the player's handbook came out on August nineteenth. The monster manual came out on September thirtieth. We're recording this podcast in mid-November, and the Dungeon Master's Guide is right around the corner. December 9th for full release and uh, two weeks earlier for Black Friday. Black Friday for uh, early release stores. Uh, but each one of those books has its own set of options for uh, magic user, uh, magic items for the, for the dungeon master to give away or monsters for, for the dungeon master to pit against you. What was the selection process for what you were going to include in some of those books? So for the player's handbook, it was fairly straightforward. Uh, we looked at the player's handbooks, for the previous four iterations of essentially the advanced Dungeons and Dragons line of D&D, you know, the D&D family tree, and made sure that every character class or race in a player's handbook was either directly represented, so dwarf was in the book, it should be in our book, Alad um, not Aladrin though, that's the example I give, get, I'll get to, uh, tiefling and so on, you know, for races, classes, cleric, fighter, barbarian. Uh, a few classes like the warlock, there's no, um, no, there is the warlock class, the warlord class from fourth edition. There's no warlord class, but you can build a warlord using the fighter. The um, Aladrin's a little bit of a weird one because it was in the fourth edition player's handbook, mm -hmm. but it didn't really fit in. It was a bit of an outlier compared to the other how we presented elves and the other the other editions, so we do include it as an option in the Dungeon Master's Guide, 
but it makes some kind of assumptions about how elves fit together as a group that didn't really apply to all of our campaign worlds other than the, the default fourth edition one. So we felt it would make the most sense to kind of put that in a place where a group can use it if they want, but it's not a core part of the game. Um, so usually if something wasn't included in the player's handbook, but had showed up in a prior example, and I think the Eladrin and the Warlord are the only examples of this, um, it was usually because including it would sort of intrude on the lore of other things, and they didn't necessarily work well together. Mm-hmm. Um, Warlord's a good example because a Warlord is essentially a fighter who specializes in tactics and commanding others. So it just made sense to us. That's a little too thinly sliced for a character class on its own, but it made a lot of sense as a fighter. And also for a fighter meant you could combine that with some other type of like tactics, like archery or whatever. So that felt like a pretty good way to, 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 to uh, represent that class. For the monster manual, we actually just made a giant list of monsters based on um, a couple surveys we did, plus our own ideas of what are the most classic monsters in D&D. And then we just figured out how many monsters could we fit in the book. And that's, like, if it was 200, then the top 200 monsters went in the book. So That one had to be a fun one. That was actually a lot of fun. I have my own idea of how the monsters got in the book. But didn't you also <laughs> say something like it was like The Bachelor and, like, Merles was handing out roses to... Because <laughs> I want to know... It was a physical interview process. That's the what I pictured. The monsters had to come to Wizards it's, of the yeah. Coast that audition. Fun? That would not be fun. fun. That would not be fun. Monsters <laughs> and monsters Merles monsters. got to, like, call them up. I'd like to eat monsters. I would pick nothing but, like, small dogs and, like, you know, cats to be in the monster annual. Oh, little puppies. Maybe, like, a horse. Horses are cool. Like a miniature pony. Yeah. That would be cool. So were you for or against the coaddle? Because I was actually kind of surprised that the coaddle made it into the monster manual. So I was, I was like neutral. People wanted to see a coaddle. I can do a coaddle impression, well, which I, was I think ask. this is leading up to. Absolutely. <laughs> so when Felicia Day was here visiting, I did my coaddle impression. This is based on the what I found to be the ludicrous situation in the old Dungeons and Dragons miniatures game we used to do, where the most powerful warband was a coaddle, which is a winged snake. And a, oh, what the heck was it called? It was this big rock guy, but he wasn't a stone golem. He was Not a, a golemder. No, no, no. He was like barely big and strong. He, it was a stone golem, but it, we didn't call it a stone golem for whatever reason. And so I, when I would play it's the cute. game, I would do impressions of these guys. And the quadl expre- impression went like this. I'm a quadl. <laughs> and that's all he would say. Oh, oh Marut. Exactly it was the would... Marut. And the Marut would say, Marut, Marut, Marut. And the Coatl would say, I'm a Coatl. See, now that would be a great supplement for the Monster Manual if we could do Record a podcast of you speaking. doing sound all files. of the monster voices. What other monsters do you want Let's me to do? Let's just pick one. Well, we're okay. going to need you to do a sound file for each and every. Okay. I don't know so if I want to know them. what a guest Start picking them. Like. What do you got there? The Galabdur. Galabdur. How about a young silver dragon? Young Silver Dragon. Oh my God, we could do this forever. I it's love It's part this. of being a dungeon master. Yeah. You have to role play you at the drop of a hat. Any monster could show up on those random charts. Can you spell Coatl? C O A U T L. Did you I get miss? It right? No, I think you got the A and the U. Oh, I did. I yeah. Did. Who Who's responsible for this? This is not the how you spell Coatl. Aztecs. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> This is, this is taken totally from mythology. And then obviously filtered through 40 years of D&D. Yeah. Which is one of the things I love most about the D&D Monster Manual is it 
has no problem pulling monsters from any source material oh, yeah. whatsoever. That's, yeah. yeah. Any mythology, any horror movie, anything that makes a good monster. That's the history of D&D, right? I mean, that's back then in the 70s, the idea of, like, world building. No one really, outside of Tolkien and a few fantasy and, like, even science fiction, like, most authors would, like, do a novel set in a universe and then do their next novel set in a different universe. The idea of this, the shared world or the series set in one world really hadn't. I mean, there were people doing it, but it wasn't as mainstream as you see now. Yeah. So is there anything that when you were designing the, the core rule books that didn't make it that you're like, oh, darn it. And maybe you use it in your home game now. Yeah, or no, Not so much. I mean, the nice thing about being the guy in charge is if I like something, we put it in there. Did so. you ever have any knockout brawls about it? Did anyone like really, really feel passionate about something and it the, didn't get in there and the closest thing oh actually this is this will be a story the closest was at one point we were looking at saying so right now if you have an ability score to figure out your modifier it's like every two points is plus one every two points above or below 10 is either plus one for above 10 or minus one for below 10 at one point there was a very strong movement to say just take your ability score subtract 10 and that's the modifier so if you right now if you have a 20 strength it's plus five under the system, it would be plus 10. Now, that sounds really great. Hey, that's easy. It's simpler than the current system we have. But there is a really actually a big cost you have to pay if you go that path. So one of the principles behind the game was to simplify and streamline the math. So we have basically your ability score modifier, and then you get a proficiency bonus that represents your character's skill. Those are the only really two numbers you add in most cases to a die roll. What happens if you increase the range of ability score modifiers? Right now, they typically range from 1 to 5. Under the system, they'd go from 1 to 10. You're doubling that range. You then either had to increase the range of proficiency bonus, which right now runs from 2 to 6, probably like 4 to 12, like maybe double it. I mean, that's off the top of my head. but So now you've really increased the math. Like there's just math's a little bigger because there's bigger numbers, harder math. It's very simple, right? But it also means that if I create my character, and let's say I create a cleric who has a 12 strength, because for a cleric, wisdom and maybe charisma are more important. Mm -hmm. So I put my 12 in strength. Sure. The fighter puts his 17 or 18 in strength. The fighter is six points ahead of me in his attack bonus, and more importantly, in his damage bonus. At low levels, that's a really big difference. Higher levels is not as much for the damage bonus, but still our accuracy and everything gets much pushed much further which now means we have to look at, well, how do we calculate our target numbers? And can we have this idea of what we call bounded accuracy? Where to make this the math very simple, typically a target number of 20 is as high as your target numbers get. So all the target numbers go from 10 to 20, no matter what level the party is. We just know characters who get higher bonuses are just better at tasks, and that's okay. We're fine with that. You're getting higher level, you get better. Simplifying the ability score modifier while in a vacuum sounds great. That's simpler. Caused so many cascading changes throughout the entire system that overall the net result was a more complicated game. So that was a huge fight because a lot of people really like that local improvement. But my feeling was always there are just too many other areas now where the game has to get more complicated because of this change we're making here, because we're increasing the spread in of difference in characters, which is something we very specifically, from the beginning, a root-level decision of this design was we did not want mathematics to be the big difference between characters. We mm -hmm. wanted special abilities to be. It's not that my number is bigger than yours. It's that I'm a fighter and I get to swing my sword twice around and I have a big sword that I'm really good at using. 
because I have maybe a damage bonus or something to it, or um, you know, I get to make an extra attack or whatever, versus a wizard who just has a staff that he just swings once and doesn't do anywhere near as much damage because it's a staff and all this other stuff. But if this wizard has to swing his staff, he still can hit often enough that it's not just a waste of time. Is it a constraint in a way that you're tying everything to a d20 roll? I, I guess what, when you're talking about that, I'm thinking, well, you could have a broader range of, of modifiers, except for the fact that you're always going to be rolling a d20. Yeah. So it's the modifiers attached to a 1 to 20 roll, yeah. not to a 1 to 100 roll or anything mm-hmm. along those lines. So the D20 seems to add in just the right amount of chaos Mm -hmm. to keep people interested. There are a lot of people who don't like the D20 because it's too chaotic. They want to have a lot more assured success. But what we found is through the play test and through data and all this other stuff, people like the feeling of risk. They like when they're rolling dice, there's a chance they could fail. They don't want to feel like it's hopeless. They also don't want to feel like it's guaranteed. They like the feeling that Sometimes the weak character rolls really well and succeeds, even though really the more skilled character should overcome him. And I think that level of uncertainty is what keeps D&D interesting because you really can't predict what's going to happen next. You can have a good sense of the odds. You can estimate your chance. You can feel like, well, I'm more skilled, so I have a higher chance of success, maybe even an 80% chance of success You know, in this conflict between me and this weaker character. Four out of five times I'll win. But that one out of five times is important, or one out of ten. And so I think the D20 does a good job of introducing just enough chaos to keep every time the dungeon master asks for a roll, there is enough tension there that it keeps people focused on the game. I'm sure with string theory and other universes, somewhere out there, <laughs> Gary Gygax and Dave Arneson had a D8 you know, version of the game, and that, that's what we'd be modifying today. <laughs> So maybe moving on to a little lighter note. Oh. Okay. Uh, you know, speaking of Kim Lundstrom, she also does the usability studies for the website. Mm-hmm. And one of the questions we always get to ask potential candidates just to see what the answer is, is who wins in a fight between a wizard and a dragon? So well, I'd ask the two of you, who wins in a fight between a wizard and a dragon? What level wizard? It's an open form question. Doesn't matter. Well, a, what, what level do you think the wizard is? Well, ah, see, that's the <laughs> see. Now you, you, you've just asked the question: What level wizard is necessary to defeat what type of dragon? Mm. You're adding complexity to my freeform question here, like but we'll say it's it's a uh, it's a freeform it's a, question. Those are the most complex ones. It's an ancient red dragon, and it's a uh, a level fifteen wizard dragon. See, now you made it easy. See, this is what I did. I made you simplify your question, and now it's an easy question. That's, he's a master at simplification. He just told us that. I, I will nullify your answer and turn to Shelly. Well, I would have to just go with the wizard, for uh, sure. That's, you're just piggybacking on Mike now. Yeah. See, now the wizard, based on the movie Dragon Slayer, one could argue the wizard should win. The wizard. Assuming I it's a, a yeah, historical document of some type. And speaking of magic users, mm-hmm. I am now playing a sorcerer. So nice. first of all, I remember like fourth edition, I kind of had to wait a little bit for the sorcerer. Mm-hmm. Um, so thanks for putting the sorcerer in the player's handbook. But also, she is way more badass. Awesome. But good. only fifth level. And I was mm-hmm. using cantrips nice. and I was going to town all oh, over the good. board. So that's, I don't know. I just, I'm really loving the sorcerer. Good. It's a good, it's a good one. Um, did you want to talk to Mike about some of our other bonus questions? I did. Uh, These are hard hitting. This okay. is where you. This, <laughs> this is where, is you where cry. I'm going to sweat. Is, this yes. is, yeah. Uh, just because I'm curious about everyone's games and so on and so forth. Have you ever had a game with an artifact that entered into your home campaign? 
kind of re- what were the results? So we actually just played in a campaign where there was an artifact was the central piece. It was a very evil artifact. A vintage clue board? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that it was this like super evil crown. And so, of course, my character schemed and plotted to wear it as often as possible, <laughs> which was fun because I got to destroy some demons with it. And no one ever trusted my character after that, but they shouldn't have. Hmm. My character was very clearly evil. So, From what I understand about your players, or, or you, uh, your characters, I mean, no one should ever trust your It characters. depends. I like to play extreme characters, either like the very shifty, untrustworthy character or the super honorable, like, I will die rather than break my word character. So Until like he betrays you. Yeah, see if it, it will, sometimes it's fun to play the, the guy with the principles. So, How about a deity? Have you ever had a deity? Yeah, we enter in your home campaign. Yeah, we we killed uh, Kurtelmak, the god of kobolds, oh. in my, my middle school campaign because <laughs> he was the weakest god. So we beat him down, and then I think I had Thor show up once and resurrect a party that I accidentally killed because I was running the Hydra incorrectly in an, an adventure. <laughs> like they were doing damage and the heads were supposed to die, and I forgot, so we kept doing oh, eight attacks around. Yeah, That's like, an oh, old DM trick. Well, Thor will show up. And I'd like if will... Thor explained it in that exact way, too, yeah. to the, to the character. Maybe he said, like, oh, fate has been unkind to you. This is not how the universe should be written. So. <laughs> this would actually be a great plot for the next Thor movie. The next three like Thor it. movies, maybe a trilogy. Um, so this is, this is, I don't know who came up with this question, but... If any of the, the numerous pets that live in the Merle's household mm-hmm. were monsters, mm-hmm. six of them now? Six of them. Um, were monsters from the fifth edition monster manual, which would best represent them? Oh, this is easy. Bailey, my my mutt, we have no idea what Bailey is, like, as far as his lineage goes. Uh, he's an odiog because he eats poop. Oh. <laughs> He, yeah, he'll eat anything. He eats enormous sandwiches, too. He oh. eats everything. He'll eat yeah. the sandwich. No, the cat eats the sandwiches. Oh, it was the cat? Yeah. Oh. Bailey eats everything. Bailey is convinced. For Bailey, mealtime is like he just won the lottery. Like, he is convinced we're never going to feed him again. In, like, 10 months or so, Bailey's going to be extremely happy. He loves, he loves kids. Yeah. So he is, uh, he is very emo. He's uh, emo? He's our emo dog. <laughs> He's very sensitive and he loves to eat. And yes, we have to, whenever I let him out, I have to follow him because he will eat. Like some dogs, apparently, this is what they do. So I just have to follow him around and make sure I keep the backyard clean and it's all that. But yes, my dog has a problem. Yeah. And we're trying to work on it. But he just, he eats everything. Oh my God, it's ridiculous. Shelly's dog once ate an entire tray of chocolate tarts that she had baked oh, for a party. Oh, no, that's chocolate too. So. Oh, she was. She's fine. She's like a goat. Yeah. That's what Bailey's like too. Like yeah. Bailey's eating plenty of things. The vet's like, oh, you need to make him throw up. And the no. stuff like, was it, um, oh, what is it? Well, I forget what we were using, but he seemed to like like the stuff we were giving him to make him throw up. Like, Tapioca pudding. Oh, how funny. Yeah. So he's just he like, like that too. He's a little tank. He just can eat anything. Remember when Sadie ate an entire banana bread loaf and oh, you could Bailey, see yeah. it in her she stomach? She looked like a boa like constrictor yeah. had eaten. Oh, my you know. God. Yeah. Bailey gets old. He looks like a giant stuffed sausage and he eats too much. And he waddles around and then, oh, my God. He's so old. Only because I turned to the page with the Odiog and facing it is the owl bear. What is your stance on the owl bear? I'm pro owl bear. Owl bear is great. Good. Good for the environment. Good for me. Good for you. You're in a, you're in a pro owl bear. So I got to throw in my other dog, yeah, our yeah, little Sheltie, who's purebred who's compared adorable. to Bailey's total. Mud. She's super adorable, but she would be a shrieker. Oh. In that she makes endless amounts of noise for no apparent reason. If anyone comes close to her that she doesn't know, yap 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 yap. She's a guard dog. She's a watchdog. She's a herding animal. So she loves to bark, and she's a very sharp, piercing bark. All right, that's a good one. What about the cats? So the cats, let's see. Uh, well, Devil Cat, 
the cat who chose to live with us. He moved in with us. He just walked into our house and lived there. He's obviously Asmodeus. He's evil incarnate. <laughs> oh, um, so going big time. Yeah. Monsters. <laughs> he is ridiculous. Uh, our other Hadley, the cat who ate the sandwich. Yes. Is Otiug? He might. He could have been the Otiug because he'll eat anything. He eats it with his paws too. It's hilarious. So Shelley's referring to one time I was eating a sandwich. And the cat was sitting there chittering at me. He's making these really cute little, like, noises. Like, he's trying to talk to me and reaching out with his paw. I was trying to talk to you. So I have a sandwich I'm eating. I still have about half the sandwich left. So I'm like, oh, it's cute. You're trying to get the sandwich. And I kind of wave it at him. And he grabbed the sandwich and just started eating it like a <laughs> raccoon. So I think he would be, like, a rakshasa. He's the trickster spirit. He looks oh. really cute. And then he eats your sandwich. They are kind of cute. Uh-huh. And then Sophie, our cat, our other cat, she is definitely incredibly vain and bossy. So she is probably, oh, she might be like, um, but she can also be really mean when she's cornered. So a Lamia, she's probably a Lamia, very beguiling, but it's hiding a potentially vicious oh, that's streak. that's good. And then Little Gray Cat, our other cat, who, oh my God, he almost passed away. He was very sick. And then we like got treatment for him. Now he's fine. Um, oh, that's good. He is super sneaky, like, and he's also very quiet, but he can also be very affectionate. So I would say, oh, what's something that's like sneaky but good? Um, I don't know what he, what he would qualify as. Maybe like a. I don't. I want to say a shadow, but he's not evil. He doesn't. He's not trying to eat my soul or anything like that. He's probably like a hobbit. He just likes to hang out and chill and just like curl up under bed. Well, I can't say Hobbit. Oh, my God, I'll get a suit. Halfling. Halfling. <laughs> when I said Hobbit, I was referring to the, you know, the Peter Jackson movies, of course, trademark, <laughs> copyright. Halfling, of course. Yes. It's probably just like a lazy halfling. Do you know what Zelda would be? Our cat? Uh, I know. Would be a Grick. No. <laughs> she would be a Naga. Oh, yeah. yeah I could see that. She, the way that she rises up and then just attacks. <laughs> I've always thought that. I feel like they look alike. So what I took away from that conversation is you have a lot of pets. Six. I have four cats, two dogs, and a person on the way. And a person on the yeah. way. But that person on the way is going to make Bailey so happy. My dog. When she starts dropping yeah. food chunks. Bailey. Well, not only that, but Bailey loves children. He loves little kids. Absolutely loves little kids. Aw. Oh, Bailey. Yeah. You should make Bailey the godfather. He's a great. There's a reason why even though he does eat poop, we still have, like, like he's a little awesome dog. Another reason he's going to love a little yeah. person. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, before we go, uh, perhaps we'd ask the final of our many hard-hitting questions here. If you could have any magic item from the Dungeon Master's Guide coming out, what magic item would you want? Oh, what magic item would I want? And I'll ask Shelly this question, too. Okay, I know what mine is. So, I wouldn't, an apparatus of Qualish, but no, it's too slow. I couldn't drive it to work. It would uh, be really cool to have in your garage, though. Like, I restored yeah. this apparatus. A helm of teleportation would be really cool. I can mm-hmm. go just psh, go. But but then I think it, I don't know if it requires teleportation circles. Now it's like, I don't know if there's any on planet Earth. Uh, broom of flying would be really useful, except when it's cold, just to bundle up. The uh, boots of speed, those would that be fun. That would be cool. Yeah, figurines of wondrous power. That's like, that'd be cool. Mine. Yeah. I love those. The um, ring of invisibility, that's easy. But that's but then you get like the creep factor. Like, wait, why would you want to be invisible all the time? That, that's it's like, oh, question. I just want to be left alone, not like sneak into locker rooms, right? Yeah, like, no, creepy. so I don't want to give that answer. That's John Hodgman's eternal question. Flight or invisibility? <laughs> Flight. Flight. Invisibility, that's just deceptive. It's a little like, I don't know, like invisible to do what? That's, that cool. that's basically his premise. Yeah. Unless you're like fly. a very like introverted person. It's like, I just want to sit invisible and read a book and not have people bug me. And I can respect that, right? But, yeah. Or sneak into movie theaters or something yeah. without paying. 
<laughs> That's like the height of your like super villainy with the invisibility power. Oh, I'm so villainous. <laughs> to watch so many movies. We'll, we'll catch her one of these days. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I think I would go. I think a broom of fall. Yeah, but that might crash. Boots of speed. It um, might crash if you crash it. Yeah. Like, what would? Well, just, just, just be heights, careful. You fall. Yeah. There's only so much padding that'll. I don't you actually know how fall. comfortable it would be. Yeah. Also, a broom can't be fun. No. A broom. I mean, unless you could outfit it with a nice banana seat or something. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think uh, Ring of Three Wishes is an easy cop out. So that's what I'll go with. Ring of Three Wishes, why yeah, not? That's what I was going to say. Keep my options open. Answer. Yep, keep oh. my options open. I didn't know there was a correct answer. The correct answer, I like of the course, figurines is a of, ring of wondrous three powers. Yeah. I think those too. are cool. One of your wishes could be for a figurine of wondrous powers. Could power. you ask for more wishes? No, you can't <laughs> ask for more wishes. <laughs> could you ask for a ring, more rings of three wishes? Though? Maybe. I don't know. I don't know how that works. Nope. Mike no, says no, no. Recur- no recursive wishes. <laughs> wow. Well, in any case, we know that you are busy as always down in the hallways of R and D. So we uh, in the hallways. You. The hallways. Like the just hallway. lurks in the it's hallways. More of a hallway. <laughs> <laughs> the passages. Uh, but we thank you for your time well, to thanks, talk yeah. cruel books. Thanks today. for having me on. On behalf of Shelley Mazanoble, this is Bart Carroll. As always, thanks for listening to the Dungeons and Dragons podcast. You can download the podcast from the D and D website under the media section or subscribe directly from iTunes. Ta-da! Ta-da! That was great, guys. Thank you. Mike's a good guest.